only ones who inherit the kingdom. But he is saying that childlike trust and humility are essential for entrance. And William MacDonald says, children do not, do not have to become adults to be saved, but adults have to become like children. Verse 16. Now, behold, one came to him and said, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now, there are parallel accounts of this story in the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The gospels present this man as rich, young, and a ruler. Therefore, we commonly call him the rich, young ruler. Now, Mark vividly has this man running up to Jesus, kneeling before him, and very intensely asking the most fundamental question in life. What shall I do? that I may inherit eternal life. I mean, that's the ultimate issue. How do I have eternal life? He came with the right question. And he came to the right person, who is the ultimate authority on this issue. Now, I love how Jesus dealt with this man in what might be considered a very unconventional manner. Now, we might have expected Jesus to say, man, you got to believe. That's all. Just believe. And properly understood, that is correct. But there is a right kind of faith and a wrong kind of faith. And obviously, this man did have faith on some level. But Jesus went deeper, dealing with the heart of the matter and dealing with the nature of a true saving faith. And in doing so, he completely debunked what is often called easy believism or the lordless gospel. I don't know which has caused more damage, uh, baptismal regeneration or easy believism. I'm not sure whether hell takes in more people because of one error or the other. Both are lethal. Oftentimes, the different gospel writers make a little different emphasis or highlight one particular aspect of the story. But that does not mean that they contradict one another. For example, all four Gospels mention the inscription put up over the cross of Jesus Christ, but with slight variances. Let me show you what I mean. Matthew 27, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Mark 15, the King of the Jews. Luke 23, this is the King of the Jews. John 19, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. You see any contradictions there? No, you don't. When Mark simply says, King of the Jews, that's not contradictory to what John recorded. He just excerpted the main point he wanted to make. It is correct to say that, what uh, Mark said. Uh, I mean, he did, it did say that. But it also said Jesus of Nazareth. So in order to get the full account, we want to take all the pieces of information in all the Gospels and put them all together to have the full statement. There is no contradiction. So the full inscription would read, This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. We have a similar situation in our story today about the rich young ruler. You see, Mark and Luke have the same reading, 
But Matthew words it a little different. There's no contradiction, just a little difference in nuance. Now, the older manuscripts in Matthew simply have the rich young ruler addressing Jesus as teacher. While both Mark and Luke have him addressing Jesus as good teacher. The authorized version simply combines the two as reflected in my New King James. But uh, here's what we have then. Uh, Matthew 19, 16, and this New American Standard, a little more literal. Uh, Behold, one came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Cross-reference, same story. Mark 10, 17, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him, knelt before him, and began asking him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And again in Luke 18, a certain ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Ed Glasscock summarizes the synoptics. Uh, synoptics is the idea of similar. Uh, the similar gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke often refer to different aspects of the same event, which are not contradictory, but complementary. And since only pieces of the conversation are recorded, it is to be assumed that what was said included both the complementary good teacher and a question about what good works could earn eternal life. So putting it all together, this young man addressed Jesus as good teacher and inquired about what good thing he should do in order to have eternal life. Now, it's interesting that the word good that Mark and Luke use in reference to calling Jesus good teacher is the Greek word agathos, which refers to inner essence or essential goodness. Now, there's another Greek word translated good, kalos, which denotes outer or external goodness or beauty, which is not used. So in addressing Jesus as good teacher, he was speaking of his essential inner character, which Jesus then picked up on to make him think about what he was really saying in addressing him as essentially, inherently, a good teacher. This man came very respectfully, wanting to compliment Jesus, but he didn't realize the ramifications of what he was really saying in calling Jesus inherently good. Note he came with the presupposition that eternal life is something that you merit by works. For him, it was all about performance and what you do. For him, it was about a works righteousness. So he came inquiring about how he could attain eternal life. Eternal life in the Bible is not merely eternal existence. Even the lost have eternal existence but they really have eternal death. Eternal life uh, certainly denotes quantity of life in that it will never end. But beyond that, it denotes quality of existence. It is a sharing in God's life related to eternal peace, eternal joy, eternal love. It is to share in the quality of life that God himself is and enjoys. In eternal life, God invites us to share in his life. I mean, Jesus is the life. And we now, when we receive him, receive his life. We receive him, life. So the text uh, surrounding here 
makes these interchangeable connections. Uh, eternal life, verse 16. The kingdom of heaven, verse 23, which Lord willing we get to next week. And saved. These concepts are really all being used interchangeably. To have eternal life is to be saved from separation from God. To be saved from the wrath of God. Hell. And to share in the coming kingdom. So to have eternal life is to share with God in his kingdom forever. Now note this young man was very concerned about this. It's not that he didn't care. I talked to all kinds of people who don't care. Tried to give a track to a guy this week. He says, ah, nah, nah, I, 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 no, 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 I, I, I know all that. Uh, he was sincere. He wanted to be saved. Wanted to make sure he was saved. He wanted eternal life. Wanted to be assured of a place in the kingdom. And he was sincere. But it's not enough to sincerely want it. You see, lots of people want to go to heaven in the end. But they don't really want Jesus on his terms in the here and now. And that's the central issue. In order to have eternal life, you have to accept Jesus on his terms for who he is as Lord. This is what Jesus made the issue to be with this rich young ruler. There's no other way to take this. Lord, as gospel people don't want to know what to do with this text. Know what the issue is clearly how to have eternal life. In verse 17, Jesus goes on to say, if you want to enter into life, we're talking about life, eternal life. That's the issue here. Verse 17. So he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Both Mark and Luke have the question as recorded here in the New King James, why do you call me good? However, the New American Standard correctly translates this here in Matthew 19, 17 as why are you asking me about what is good? Two interrelated issues here. Uh, the issue of goodness related to Jesus. And then there is the issue related to God's perfect standard of goodness, which is found in God alone. And they go together. Jesus is God, and as God, he is good. And as such, he is the ultimate standard of goodness. Now, in saying to the rich young ruler, why do you call me good? And then saying, no one is good but one, and that is God. Jesus was implying that if he was indeed intrinsically good, then he must be God. Which, of course, he is. So right off, Jesus, in effect, made the issue who he is as goodness personified. It was an indirect way of implying that indeed he is God. If Jesus is good and only God is good, then Jesus must be God. That should have made this young man think. And it lays the groundwork for what Jesus is about to say when he tells the young man to sell all and follow him. I mean... <laughs> Who makes that kind of a demand? I want you to sell everything. I would never do that with you. And, and, and I wouldn't listen to anybody else who does that. I mean, who do you think? You'd say, who do you think you are, right? 
uh, making that kind of a demand on me. I mean, you're acting like you're God or something. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that was what he was doing. He was laying the groundwork for when he says to this young man, sell all and follow me. And Jesus could make this demand because he indeed is Lord God. Spurgeon said, the argument is clear. Either Jesus was good or he ought not to have called him good. But as there is none good but God, Jesus who is good must be God. Jesus also laid the groundwork here for this. In a few moments, this young man would claim to be good, saying that he had kept all the commandments. But Jesus has already told him, no one is good but one, and that is God. The standard for goodness is God himself. Now, in presenting the most systematic presentation of the gospel found in the New Testament, Paul spent the bulk of the first three chapters in Romans showing that there is none good, no, not one. I mean, he labors at this. He labors to show that none of us are good. He shows that the pagan is not good, which everybody would say, amen. And then he labors to show, okay, but the moralist also is not good. And then also the religionist is not good. Bringing to the conclusion, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, the pagan, the moralist, the religionist, all have sinned. And here's the problem, and fall short of the glory of God. The standard is God's glory, and all human beings come short. The only exception to this is Jesus, who is the God-man. Jesus was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. He truly was goodness personified in a human body. He was God in a human body. Now, the God standard of goodness is seen in the Mosaic law. As Paul says in Romans 7, 2, the law is holy. No problem with the law. That's not the problem. And again, in 1 Timothy 1, 8, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And that's exactly what Jesus proceeded to do. You see, he's dealing with a self-righteous man. And when you're dealing with self-righteous people, what do you do? You apply the law. Okay, you you claim you're good. Let's measure you up here. He applied the law as a means of examination to show that indeed he was not good. And so Jesus said, but if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. In effect, Jesus was saying, if you want to enter into life by doing good, then keep the commandments. I mean, that's, that's good. Just, just keep the commandments. All 613 of them, of which the, the base is the Ten Commandments. But here's the rub. Here's the rub. No one can keep the law. We all break it. Keeping the commandments presents an impossible standard. That's, that's Paul's conclusion, right? Right before saying all have sinned, he says, Romans 3, 19 through 20. What is the standard? Now, we know that whatever the law says, says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. I have no defense. And all the world may become guilty before God. That's what the law shows. Guilty, guilty. We've all broken God's moral law. 
Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. Impossible. No flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. This is what this young man failed to see. He failed to realize he could never perform good enough. He was not good enough. He failed to realize that he was indeed a lawbreaker. William McDonald says, The Savior was not implying that the man could be saved by keeping the commandments. Rather, he was using the law to produce conviction of sin in the man's heart. Ray Comfort says, Biblical evangelism always follows the principle of law to the proud and grace to the humble. The law brings conviction and shows that we come short of the goodness of God's glory standard. You see, the law is like a mirror that reveals our sin, but does nothing to cleanse us. Then when our mouths are shut and we admit that we cannot defend ourselves and that we are guilty, then the message of grace comes in like a soothing balm, bringing healing to all who by faith embrace the gospel of grace. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, said, My grand point in preaching is to break the hard heart and to heal the broken one. The law shows us our guilt. The cross shows God's answer to our sin problem. The answer for guilty lawbreakers is the grace of the cross. As John 1.17 says, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. But, but this young man's mouth was not yet stopped. Very defensively, he said, verse 18, he said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbors yourself. Jesus here listed the sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, and fifth commandments of the Ten Commandments as found in Exodus 20. And for good measure, he said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, as found in Leviticus 19.18. Now, Jesus is really here dealing with the, the second table of the law. Uh, we commonly talk about the two tables of the law. The, the first four commandments are God-oriented and are called the first table. And the last six commands relate to the treatment of people and are called the second table of the law. So there you go. The first table, the second. He's really dealing with this second table. Now, the New Testament makes it clear that in loving your neighbor as yourself, we really have a summary of the entire second table of the law. For example, Romans 13. For the commandments, you should not commit adultery, you should not murder, you should not steal, you should not bear false witness, you should not covet. And if there's any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Well, do we really love our neighbor as ourself? I, boy, this is convicting. I, I must say, I do not. Uh, A.P. Gibbs used this illustration. You're coming home from home. You're, you're coming home from town. And you see smoke ahead. Near to where you live, a house is on fire. The engines, the fire engines roar past with howling sirens. You quicken your pace and round a corner. The fire is on your street. 
you break into a run, then you heave a great sigh of relief as you say, I'm so glad it's my house. I'm so glad it's not my neighbor's. Whoever says such a thing? We don't say that. Typically, we don't really love our neighbors ourselves. Self so often continues to reign as number one, if we're honest. Verse 20. The young man said, mouth not stopped. The young man said, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? He claimed to have kept them all, including loving his neighbors himself. No doubt he sincerely believed this. Outwardly, he had not killed anyone. He had not been immoral. He had not been a thief. He had not borne false witness against his neighbor. He had been a good boy. He was a good little boy. I don't know if he's that little. Probably 30 years old, maybe somewhere in there. He had been a good boy, consistently honoring his parents. They never had to spank him. Never had a licking in his life. And yet he wondered if he was still lacking something, saying, what do I still lack? That's always the haunting question for those who are depending on being good enough. The problem is none of us are good enough. No matter how good we are, we are still lacking. People often say, oh, he's such a good person. What verse are you looking at? Uh, The issue is according to whose standard? Yes, perhaps relatively speaking, measured up against other people. You can always find somebody a little worse, a little more low life than you as it would appear. But other people are not the measuring stick that God uses. That's not the measuring stick. God himself is the measuring stick. And none of us measure up to good when measured up against God. As Jesus said, no one is good but one. And that is God. In the end, we're all found lacking. You say, what about all the righteous things I do? Well, thanks for asking. Isaiah 64, 6 answers. But we are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses, not all our sins, all the right things we do, even those things are tainted by sin. You say, well, look at all the good I'm doing. What's your motivation? Maybe a little self-oriented here. I want people to notice. All our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Your fate is a leaf, our iniquity is like the wind have taken us away. James 2.10. Whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. It's like a windshield that's broken. You say, well, it's just broken on that side. It's just shattered over there. But there is, I'm not broken over here. I, I have a little space here. You can barely see through it, but it's, it's not broken. Yeah, it is. The law is an all or nothing proposition. Any defect, no matter how small, is disqualifying. You see, God demands perfection. It was one sin that got Adam and Eve kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Just one. God didn't say, well, you know, we got a kind of a pattern going here. You guys have been sinning night and day for, you know, how long? I got to kick you out because this pattern. No, one. One sin that brought death upon the whole human race. Even one tiny sin will keep a person out of heaven. The case within ourselves is hopeless, which is what this young man needed to see. This man was thinking in terms of his own efforts. 
He was looking for another thing to do, another command, another ritual, another rite or ceremony, which in his thinking would complete his regiment of religious requirements necessary for him to merit eternal life. But salvation is for those who realize they're completely bankrupt and have nothing meritorious to offer. That's what Jesus meant when he started the, uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is a kingdom. Blessed are those who admit they're completely bankrupt. Within ourselves, we are completely hopeless and helpless with no way of improving our prospects before God. Verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, You admit you're you're lacking. You're saying, what do I lack? Here's what it is. If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. What? You put that answer down on your quiz in Bible college and you'll flunk. What? What is this? Salvation by philanthropy? We're now going to take up the offering. Years ago, when Warren Buffett gave $1.5 billion to the Gates Foundation to help seek cures for diseases and education, he said at that time, quote, there is more than one way to get to heaven, but this is a great way. Well, Mr. Buffett, Mr. Buffett, he was wrong on both counts. There's only one way to get to heaven, and philanthropy is not the way. Giving away your money is not a way to heaven. Jesus himself is the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no other way. Acts 4.12, very clear. Nor is there salvation in any other. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other way. Now, the Bible couldn't be more clear in saying that we are not saved by our own good works. Couldn't be more clear. Romans chapter 4, verse 5, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. True faith says, I'm not depending on my works. I'm depending on Jesus, his finished work. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace, God's unmerited favor, you have been saved through faith that not of yourselves. It's a gift. It's a gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Nobody can brag on what they've done because it's not by works. Clearly, Jesus was dealing with how to have eternal life. Clearly, as the text goes on to show, the issue in view is how to be saved. With Jesus saying... So we continue on, Lord willing, next week. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. That's the issue here. This is most clearly a salvation context about eternal life and how to have it. So the question becomes, okay, what, what is Jesus saying? If you want to be perfect, means to be made complete, to be made whole, to be made right with God where you are no longer lacking before him. In context, it means to be saved. Mark 10.21 adds this note saying, 
Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, if you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give to the poor and you have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Jesus loved him and was concerned about him and therefore shared the hard truth with him. By the way, the word love in Mark 10, 21 is the intense word for love, agape. Agapao. As far as we know, this man was never saved, and yet Jesus loved him, just as he so loved the world and gave his only begotten son. Jesus was doing two things here in a very graphic way. Number one, he was showing the man that indeed he did not really love his neighbor as himself. If he really loved his neighbor as himself, he'd be willing to give away everything. He had for the good of others, for the sake of the poor who were less fortunate than him. Did he really care about them like he cared for himself? That was a test before him, which he failed. Second, Jesus was calling for a great exchange. Jesus was not teaching salvation by good works, but rather telling him that in order to be saved, he would have to get rid of his materialism God. He would have to exchange his mammon God for Jesus as Lord. This was a total lordship issue. That's the point. That's the point. This man was going to have to decide who or what was going to be his God. That was the issue. Jesus' request of this man was simply meant to establish whether he was willing to submit to the sovereign authority of Jesus over his life. Charles Spurgeon said this, Whatever a man depends upon, whatever rules his mind, whatever governs his affections, whatever is the chief object of his delight, is his God. And Jesus was making it very clear. He couldn't have it both ways. If he was to have Jesus as his Lord God, he would have to jettison the God of his possessions. I mean, if he was to follow Jesus, to follow Jesus as Lord, he would have to stop pursuing materialism as Lord. It was a lordship issue. And Jesus is absolutely consistent here. Remember what he said back in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either hate one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is the, is the materialism God, the possessions God. That's what he had here. This was the issue with the rich young ruler. What would be his master? That's the issue. Would it be his possessions or would it be Jesus? That's a great issue before him, as graphically illustrated by Jesus. Now, in the end... Jesus not only showed this man that he was breaking the second table of the law in not loving his neighbor as himself, but he was also breaking the first table of the law in not loving God as his number one. He was breaking the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. This man had a problem, a materialism, possessions problem, for this really was his God that drove his life. So Jesus was calling for an exchange of gods. It's called repentance. You remember Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was that little guy with a big problem. 
You see, he was a, the chief tax He wasn't just a tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. And the Bible says he was rich. One day he met Jesus and he said to Jesus, Lord, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus responded to him by saying, today salvation has come to this house. What? Is that salvation by philanthropy? No. You see, Zacchaeus was not saved because of his newfound generosity, but because his whole change in attitude, which was evidence that he was truly saved. When he called Jesus Lord, that denoted an entire life change. In order to be saved, we must accept Jesus as Lord. That is our God master. Being perfectly good, Jesus is God. In recognizing him as master, we follow him, which is what Jesus called this man to do. And Jesus is very consistent when you study him through. In John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. You see, we can't claim the eternal life of verse 28 if the follow me of verse 27, is missing. Verse 28 follows the truth of verse 27. It is those who follow Christ who have eternal life. Now, we hasten to say, we are not saved by following. That would be works. But if we are saved, if we believe on the Lord, we will follow. We recognize His voice as Lord, and we follow. Following is a lordship reality. Now, when Jesus says, come follow me, that denotes putting complete trust in him. We follow him in recognition of who he is. John Walford said his real problem was lack of faith in Christ, whom he considered a good teacher, but who apparently was not to be regarded as one who had the right to demand that he give up all in order to follow him, that is, Lord, Faith is ultimately a choice, and the young man chose riches rather than Jesus. Recognizing Jesus as Lord God means we see him as our ultimate authority. It means we value him above all else as the most important reality in our life. I agree with Augustine on this point. Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. This is completely consistent, by the way, with what Jesus said in Matthew 10. Remember what he said back there, Matthew 10? He who loves father mother more than me, more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. This is exactly what Jesus was saying to the rich young ruler. He was telling him that he must put Jesus first above all else. Jesus is Lord, and he demands to be recognized for the God that he is. Now, this is what it means to believe on Jesus as Lord, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it must be personal. When doubting Thomas saw the risen Lord, he said, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said, You have believed. This is what it means to believe in Jesus. It means to accept him as my Lord and my God. It's a matter of faith. Jesus said so. Lord means master, the one who has absolute authority over you. 
In saving faith, we accept Jesus as our God master. And that changes everything. Now, this is not a works concept, but a faith concept. To believe means to accept something as true. And the Bible says that saving faith is a matter of the heart. It's a sincere, life-changing commitment. To believe on Jesus as Lord means to personally accept the truth of who he is as Lord God. And as Jesus will go on to say, only God can bring a person to this point. Saying in verse 26, with men this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. It's not works. It's a matter of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord. Not a mean it. No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You don't arrive at that point on your own. In and of ourselves, we would never get there. Now, for a true believer, Jesus is recognized as Lord. And then we grow in relationship to this truth we have come to embrace. And none of us are completely consistent with it, and we won't be until we get to glory. In fact, this is the great issue in sanctification. Learning to be consistent with the truth of Christ's lordship that we have now come to know and believe. But down deep in the heart of every believer, we bow before the truth of Jesus as Lord. We recognize his sovereign authority over our lives even though we're not always consistent with the truth that we have come to know. And sometimes we can be very disobedient children. What Jesus was telling this rich young ruler is that indicative of accepting him as Lord involved the great exchange, getting rid of his mammon God and making him Lord. This would change his spiritual life completely. This and nothing less. By the way, Paul expressed the same concept in Philippians 3, 7 through 9, when he said that he had counted all things loss, that he might gain Christ. He counted all things loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, and thereby received the righteousness which is from God by faith. Counting all things lost and believing on Jesus as my Lord is what defines the very nature of saving faith. In Luke 14.33, Jesus said, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. You see, verse 21 answers the question of verse 16. In verse 16, the man asked Jesus, What shall I do that I may have eternal life? In verse 21, Jesus says, To be made complete, he must exchange his materialism God and follow Jesus as his Lord God. This man needed a new God. He needed to accept Jesus as his Lord. D.A. Carson says absolute allegiance to Jesus with the humility of a child is essential to salvation. Jesus demands to be recognized as Lord over all, and for those who make this lordship commitment, he promises treasure in heaven. It will be worth it all. Uh, Hudson Taylor A lot of people have said this, but Hudson Taylor said, Christ is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. I like to say Christ is either Lord over all or he's not Lord at all. We have to recognize him for who he is. This young man was sincere. He wanted eternal life. But alas, he didn't want it on Jesus' lordship terms. And he got the point. Either 
that Jesus would be Lord or his possessions. And he made his choice to have his possessions remain as his Lord instead of Jesus. And so the text says, verse 22, but when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He went away sorrowful, meaning he was grieved. He was miserable. And the text is very clear that the problem was his great possessions that stood between him and Jesus. Which way is it going to be? My possessions are Jesus. He went away. Putting his possessions above Jesus, that's damning. He was not willing to put Jesus above his possessions. He understood very clearly what Jesus was demanding. Namely, that he be Lord over all. He went a great way grieved. Although he came to Jesus for eternal life, he left without it. He did not desire it above the possessions of this present life. He wanted to gain salvation, but not as much as he wanted to keep his property. Note it very carefully. The young man believed intellectually. That's why he went away sorrowful. If he didn't say, well, I don't believe a word you're saying. You have no credit. No, no, no. He believed intellectually on some level. That's why he went away sorrowful. The problem was he did not have a kind of belief that properly aligns with the truth of Christ's lordship. This he rejected. And consequently, he was not saved, as the text goes on to clearly indicate in the following verses. John MacArthur says, The incident recorded in Matthew 19, 16 through 22 gives great insight into how some people who show great interest in the gospel never come to have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. This young man went away from Christ not because he heard the wrong message or because he did not believe, but because he was unwilling to admit his sin, forsake all that he had, and follow Christ as Lord. This text speaks to the very nature of saving faith. It gets to the very heart of the gospel, which is all about who Jesus is as Lord God and Savior. We must admit that we can do nothing to save ourselves. We're not good enough. We're all sinners who come short of God's glory. We need Christ as our Savior. And we must believe on Christ as our personal Lord. As Savior, he died for all of our sins. As Lord over all, he arose again the third day. And saving faith believes in him as our personal Savior and Lord. Savior and Lord is a package that cannot be broken. I agree with Adrian Rogers, who said, if he's not your Lord, he's not your Savior. You know, it's interesting to study the Gospels, as I have studied intensely for many years. The earthly ministry of Christ was very largely about who he is as Messiah God. I mean, his earthly ministry was introduced really by his baptism with the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Then as we get on towards the end of his ministry, uh, he says to the disciples, who do people say that I am? This is the ultimate issue. And of course, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the issue in the Gospel of John, the Gospel of belief. We have the seven I am statements. I am. That's a title for God. And Jesus says to the Jews, if you don't believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. The climax of the book, Doubting Thomas, my Lord and my God. 
And then building on the truth of who Jesus is, this foundation laid so strongly on you must believe in Jesus for who he is as Messiah God. Building on that, we come to the climactic work of Jesus Christ, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. The reason the cross is such a big deal is because of who he is as the God-man. That's why his life had infinite value. About 20 years ago, Timothy McVeigh was executed for, at that time, uh, which was the deadliest act of terrorism perpetrated on American soil in American history up to that point. At the time of his execution, the only thing he said that he wanted for his final statement was that someone read W.E. Henley's poem titled Invictus, which means unconquered. And so they read, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You see, this is the spirit of rebel unbelief that will not bow, that will not bend to the truth of Christ's lordship. In contrast to that, Dorothy Day wrote a poem titled, My Captain, which reflects biblical faith in Christ. She wrote, Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. This is the ultimate question. Who is Jesus to you? Is he your master? Is he your personal Lord and Savior? You see, the gospel is that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again as Lord over all. That's why the Bible says, believe on the Lord, Savior. Jesus means Savior. Believe on the Lord Jesus. Believe on the Lord, Savior, and you will be saved. That's what we have to do to be saved. Who is he to you? Is he really your master, your God master? Or are you just playing games? I mean, we all fail him all the time, but down deep in our hearts, we worship him. There's no higher authority in our lives as true believers than Jesus Christ. We know him as the I am. It's real to us. And that's what changes our lives. And glory of all glories, he died for all of our sins. We never can save ourselves. He did it. It's all about who he is and what he's done. A package of Lord and Savior. You say, well, I'm not sure I buy that Lordship part. What do you do with this text? That's my only answer. I read all these non-lordship. They, they don't deal with, or if they do, they fumble around. They don't know what to do with this text. It's so clear what Jesus said to this rich young ruler. Couldn't have it both ways. All right, let's stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close in prayer.